Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Palm and Passion Sunday lectionary. Our lovely guests this week are the amazing Christina M. Pacheco, J.D. M.P.H., who is an assistant professor and community-based participatory researcher in the Family Medicine and Community Health Department at University of Kansas Medical Center. She enjoys quality time with her dog Frida, named after Frida Kahlo, and fighting for social justice. And last but not least, the Reverend Phil Hooper, S.M.M.S., who serves as the rector of St. Anne Episcopal Church in Westchester, Ohio, and is a board member of the Center for Deep Green Faith. Phil has interests in writing, contemplative spirituality, and creation care. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being guests on the podcast. Everybody loves to hear your stories. And what stands out for you as you think about Palm Sunday? My fondest memories of Palm Sunday were when I was a child and they would hand out the palms uh, during church and then we would do a procession out and around the church and then back in. And it just felt like a very celebratory time, um, lots of joy. Um, And then I always remember like our back row was often occupied by our older Hispanic ladies who I don't think spoke English very well, but they still came to church um, and they would make like beautiful flowers out of their palm fronds and crosses. And then they would give those and share those with us. Um, And I liked having something tactile to do (laughs) instead of just, you know, sitting there listening, Mm. Um, particularly as, you know, a child, it was, it was nice to have that kind of added piece to the service. To that end, it feels like Palm Sunday is one of those wonderful liturgies where you actually get to live the story that's being told in a much more sort of Mm. all-encompassing way than we might experience on other Sundays throughout the year. That that the procession of the palms and then the way it transitions into the the rest of of the liturgy and the passion narrative. It's just it's it's you're, you're sort of submerged into the whole thing and you can really start to feel how you are a part of this story and it, and it comes alive in a different way. I always love that about Palm Sunday. And I think I, I love too that because you're sort of living the story, you also realize sort of how complex and ambiguous the story is because it has, mm. it has aspects of joy and it has aspects of horror. It has all of these things all combined together and that just feels so real to me because that's the way the world is. And so I just love how Palm Sunday brings all of that to life and puts us in the midst of it. What liturgical ideas do you have for this service? I mean, kind of to Christina's point, I, I think always if there's an opportunity to have that procession with the palms, that that feels like that sense memory that sticks and stays within people and and is really important. Um, it's like a form. It's a formational moment, I think, for so mm-hmm. for so many of us who have been able to participate in it. Uh, so I guess, depending on where a person is is worshiping and what the weather is like, I, I I know that that can get complicated. But I I would say definitely, even if it's terrible weather outside and you can't do uh, 
a nice, you know, happy procession with the palms and the sunshine, I would say try to figure out some way that you could still gather people together for that moment and then process into the church with your with your palms or whatever greenery you're using. I think that is a really key moment for for people. Yeah, I think it's those services that were interactive in some way, shape or form that are the ones that really created those, you know, lasting memories for me, like um, the service where you actually get to wash each other's feet. You know, that's another mm -hmm. one where there's an activity where you are joining in fellowship with, you know, the people that you are sitting with, as opposed to just kind of sitting in the pews and, and being very passive. Mm. Um, so I would definitely, yeah like Phil said, you know, encourage kind of that interactive experience that helps you live the liturgy. Good to bear in mind that for a lot of folks, especially if they're not able to come to the, you know, Monday, Thursday or Good Friday services, um, their whole experience of Easter, Holy Week and Easter is Palm Sunday and then maybe Easter Day. And so just remembering that even though for those of us who are in the trenches of planning liturgies, we're thinking about sort of that whole movement of, of the experience through those weekday services, that for a lot of people, it's going to be maybe these two Sundays. So make sure that you're thinking about how they speak to one another as well, even without the, the other components of, of Holy Week in there. Hmm. That's a really good point. I love the idea of church involving everybody, right? Because liturgy means the work of the people. And so how can we always incorporate folks into the service? And maybe this is a great way to start. Sometimes when it was too snowy, we would start in like the parish hall and then process into the sanctuary. So it might not be that far, but it's still something if you can't get outside. In the parish that I recently started at, they, they have shared with me, this will be my first Holy Week with them, but they shared that in addition to palms, they go out to some of the, the plants and things that are growing here on the church property and they make some trimmings and they incorporate those into the procession as well, which I think is a cool idea because then it, it makes it more less like you're sort of play acting something that happened somewhere else and incorporating something of your locality into the liturgy, which I think, again, makes the connection between like we are participating in in what is happening here. Mm. One of the things that always strikes me about this particular day is like you start off reading this wonderful story of Jesus triumphantly entering uh, into the city. And then, you know, like a week later, he's being crucified. And it always feels very like, you know, you have the highest high and the lowest low. And where do you see things like that happening in our world or in our church? I mean, I feel like we see it all the time. Like, I feel like that's just the ebb and flow of life, right? Like we have highs and lows, maybe not to that, always to that um that drastic of a low, but um, I mean, I think that for me, it's like life is cyclical um, and, you know, you have good times that oftentimes will then usher in some bad times and then, you know, things will resolve and, and then they're good again. And I think it's just making sure that, you know, you have the right supports to get through those bad times 
knowing that things will eventually get light again. Um, you know, I think we see that in our seasons as well as, you know, I'm sitting here in sub-zero temperatures and, um, you know, just really waiting for the spring, but appreciating what the, what the winter actually does for us, um, I think is important too. And even though, you know, the crucifixion is very dark, um, and, and, you know, just a horrible time, like we needed that, right. For, for eternal forgiveness. And so, um, knowing that sometimes light is born out of these dark moments, I think is really helpful. Um, particularly, uh, when you kind of look at it introspectively. Hmm. What I was thinking about with this was, you know, through the highs and the lows that Jesus experiences as we as we bear witness to them on Palm Sunday, what I was thinking about is that Jesus himself, as the central figure of the narrative, he is he is not the one sort of uh, requesting, demanding, or seeking out either the highs or the lows. He's sort of the calm, still center that moves through what the world around him is doing, whether mm. they are sort of idolizing him and you know, thinking he's going to be the next great thing to solve all of their problems in the expected way, or whether he's being vilified and then ultimately crucified, he maintains this really striking, unbelievable sense of equanimity in the midst of all of it. And I just, I, I think that is quite remarkable. And, and maybe it speaks to some of what you were just saying, Christina, about what are the ways in which we move through the cycles of life, through the highs and the lows, and how do we find that that clear center? Where where do we identify it, and how do we tap into it? Um, ultimately, I think it comes from God, and so what are the ways that we that we manifest that and and sort of understand the way in which God shows up for us through through the highs and the lows, because. What Jesus experiences, while we may not be subject to the exact same narrative that he is, certainly, I think these patterns of sort of idolization and vilification are rampant around us and probably are, always have been. Just listening to you talk through that, Phil, like for me, the part that stuck out is like, he knew this was coming, right? And a lot mm -hmm. of times we don't know what storms are on the horizon. We just know that eventually one will come, right? Because that mm -hmm. is part of the process of life. Um, and so to handle that with such poise and like centeredness, I think there's definitely space for learning in that. It's like enjoying these moments of joy, um, but then also, you know, not taking them for granted because, you know, living in that kind of joy and carrying some of those pieces with you um, through these times of, you know, low or hard um, can kind of help you endure that. And so I, mm -hmm. I have no idea what Jesus was, you know, doing to stay centered, I, but um, I, I think that that could be a helpful lesson is like, you know, really making sure that we keep these pieces with us um, and hold them dear, like those moments where we're with our loved ones, those moments of, you know, um, achievement in your career or your prof or personal life um, to really help kind of get you through these scarier, darker times, I think, um, 
is something that I've utilized and has been helpful for myself. And I think this whole, the, what we're talking about now would be a great sort of thread of thought and development if one felt the need to preach sort of a pastoral sermon hmm. on Sunday, you know, one really tending to the, the personal needs of, of the people in your congregation. I think this is a really great overlap of the themes of the day and felt realities for so many people. I was thinking about like the, for folks with mental health stuff, especially like if you have um, bipolar or whatever, where you have those really high highs and the low lows and you can just kind of go from one to the other. How can you walk through that? And then I was also thinking about how like the, the, the thing that I thought of as I was thinking about it this year was the, the Hunger Games movie where it's like the people on the outside who really wanted this transformation and change that's so different from in the city. And it could explain why that difference when Jesus was outside of the city to inside of the city, right? Everybody wanted the folks who were going into the Hunger Games to, to transform and they were really rooting for them and hopeful for them. And then when they get into the city, the city didn't like that, right? Because it's trying to stir up the pot and change um, their, their everyday way that where they're very privileged. Um, it made me think about that. Hmm. Let's shift into the passion narrative and this particular version this year we have mark it includes so many things there's like jesus's anointing the last supper the foreshadowing the passion the centurions realizing it jesus um and the barrier what stands out to you for the passion narrative what's holding your heart right now i've spent the past year uh doing some volunteer work with an organization that's focused largely on sort of eco-theology and creation care. And one of the things that has come along with that just in my own reading of scripture and, and just thinking about faith is oftentimes in these narratives, we are really focused on all of the actions of the human beings uh, that are that are being depicted. But I also, I find myself oddly noticing all of the sort of non-human actors, <laughs> characters, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. within the narrative. So, you know, whether that's the stone tomb that holds Jesus's body, whether that's the wood of the cross, whether that's the, the oil that's, you know, used to anoint his head, like the actual sort of, to think of those things as characters, that's been a new way of relating to scripture for me but one that has opened up all kinds of different avenues of thought and reflection. And as because this is such a comprehensive narrative and it takes in so many different moments uh, of importance, it also, I think, speaks to me of sort of the comprehensive nature of what Jesus is up to and what's being done and how what he is doing and why he is doing it is for the sake of all of creation, not just for human beings, uh, even though we might be the ones who are the you know principal players in this drama, uh, that, that his sort of liberating salvific purpose is drawing all creation to himself. And so I, for whatever reason this season, that, that's really been standing out to me, especially in the midst of a really rich, multifaceted narrative like this. Hmm. And then, and I'll just say like, too, it's Palm Sunday. Do we ever think of the palms as like a character in the, right. in, in the story of salvation? I don't know, maybe not, but it would be interesting to, to think about that more and see what we, might, what we might uncover. The thing that stuck out for me that I don't think I've ever spent a lot of time really reflecting on with 
Jesus cries out and says, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, you know, for the son of God to even feel like that, because I know there's been quite a few times in my life where I have felt like God has left me. Mm. And then it makes me think of that poem about the footprints in the sand. And it's like, for the son of God to feel deserted, like, me as you know just an everyday person to also have those feelings makes me feel a little bit closer Hmm. to god and to jesus and knowing that you know like i think that's just the nature of trials and tribulations like we feel so alone in those periods of time but knowing that we're not alone in suffering um and that while that experience may be very personal Others have also experienced, you know, their own trials and tribulations, and that brings a little bit of comfort. Um, And then also kind of that thinking piece of like, you weren't alone. It's just, you know, at that point in time, you were, you know, enshrouded and carried by God um, through those because, you know, we do come through on the other end. Sometimes, you know, we do take some hits and need to do our own healing in that process. Um, And sometimes we come out stronger for it, right? Um, And so for me, like, yeah, and I've heard this, you know, every year for many years. Uh, I won't date myself by putting my age out there. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. But yeah, so that, I mean, that piece really stuck out for me was, you know, the humanness of that moment um, where Jesus felt alone, I think, uh, really touched me. And I think about that and what is happening in our world right now with, you know, the various wars and, and how those individuals have to feel alone, right? Have to feel unsupported, have to feel terrified and scared. And knowing that, you know, they're not alone in that feeling and that the son of God himself felt that way too. For me, I was thinking what stood out this year as I was reading is the woman anointing Jesus. And I don't know why, but I just always thought it was the feet. And this is the first time I noticed that it was his head. And then I was like looking at the parallel gospels and noticed that like, these, there's two where Jesus is uh, being anointed on the head, and then there was two where Jesus was anointing on the feet. And then in this one, they don't say anything about the woman's sin, because the other one was like, there was a woman who had committed a great sin, and they never say what it is, right? And of course, all these people have said all these other things about it. But what do you make of that difference, the head versus the feet? And I, you know, there's a, like, I think the head is always like, when you anoint a king, that's always on the head, and the feet could be a lot of things. But what do you make of that difference? I don't know. We, I mean, Jesus says in the narrative, she has anointed me for my burial. So I guess we can, we can take him at his word, though. I think to your point, Shaniqua, the, the anointing of a king on the head certainly adds a different sort of resonance maybe than, mm-hmm. than, than it's depicted elsewhere in the gospels. Um, but I think no matter what, no matter which part of the body, the, the thread that runs through a lot of those those narratives is that this action, this action of her anointing and pouring out this precious oil is itself, Jesus proclaims it to be itself a sign of the sort of extravagant, holy, self-giving love 
that I think is reflective of the same love that he mm. has come to embody and proclaim as God's posture towards all of creation. And so the the idea that this oil is somehow wasted as as she is accused of by by certain folks uh, is is basically Jesus is saying you're you're completely misunderstanding the whole point of what I am about and what we are about together that there is no greater gift there is no greater um, act of faith than a completely wasteful extravagant pouring out of love upon one another. And, and I think that same theme is revisited in all kinds of different ways, right? But, but I think in this moment, it really encapsulates that in this beautiful moment of intimate service uh, that is, is indeed so, so rich for reflection. You know, there's so many different places you could be or characters you could be in this story. What character or characters do you identify with or where would you place yourself in this story? And I know I move around at different times. One year I was the bystander and sometimes we feel like Jesus if we're being persecuted. (laughs) Where do you place yourself this year? I think for myself, at least in this moment, this year, it's just it's been a it's been a really intense year of transition and change, really good change, but just very intense change. And I think <laughs> I think I'm probably feeling a little bit like Simon of Cyrene, sort of conscripted from the crowd, going about your business, but now called into this new reality that's going to shape you and impact you in ways that you can't begin to imagine, uh, and trying to process that as you go, sort of. Maybe carrying the burden of of what is what is handed to you and not really realizing in the moment its full significance, but just trying to be faithful step by step. Um, that is how I have felt this year, just on, in my own journey through life. Uh, I think for me, then the the hope is that I will get to a place where uh, all that has been happening will make sense in the light of resurrection, whatever that looks like. Um, but, but it has been, it, I think it's been a Simon to Cyrene kind of, kind of year for me. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would have like a named role. <laughs> I don't know that I, I see myself. Um, and so maybe just being a bystander and, really trying to figure out when and where it's appropriate for me to use my voice Mm. and to speak out and not be afraid of judgment. Um, So maybe a little bit more um, Peter per se, and, you know, making sure that, you know, my, my faith is strong and that I am comfortable in asserting it. Um, and using my voice in a way that um, can be helpful uh, for others, I think is really important and something that I want to carry forth in, in 2024. I think it's a great question, no matter what our answer ends up being. I, I always like that question, Shaniqua, because it, it, it invites you to a, a deeper space within the narrative and it might reveal, especially if you're trying to prepare for a sermon, it might reveal some sort of deep truth that that might really be worth evoking um, that that others might resonate with. I I have often found in preaching that 
going into those deep spaces of reflection and a, a question like this invites that that type of reflection i think it can really reveal some good movement of the spirit uh when you're when you're trying to preach on preach on something as complex as this as this gospel i was thinking about the marys and like mm-hmm. some of the women and how like um kind of like what you said christina like um i've seen a lot of sort of bad things happening that we can't as one person necessarily change, but we can do things to make it better, you know, like taking away the healthcare of trans kids in so many of our states or women's ability to have autonomy over their own bodies. And how can we, what is our role in that, right? Our role might be something very practical, like washing Jesus' body for burial, or it might be something like speaking out or, you know, whatever that, that might be. Uh, but in this gospel mentions women several times. What do you see as a significance of the women in this gospel? That they are the often unacknowledged core of Jesus's whole ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful moment that we should highlight where women's discipleship and leadership is actually acknowledged and central to the narrative. Mm. Um, of course, we know that that's been too often overlooked and silenced by church tradition and so yeah it's it they they are of fundamental importance to all that jesus experiences in this horrific week and their presence their their practical care their courage their their willingness to be present where others are not i mean that all speaks to a a truly remarkable deep faith and strength that is is a model for for all of us to follow. Yeah, I agree. I think they play a prominent but understated role in the mm. story, mm-hmm. um, kind of in the background, but but still present. Um, and I was thinking of you know the servant girl who is prompting uh, Peter to you know like acknowledge that. You know, he knows Jesus and mm. kind of continues to to push on that piece of it, um, even though he's denying it. Um, and, you know, really being like those truth seekers in this story, I think, is, is a big part of that. And I think um, is important for, you know, the role that women play in society today. I think a lot of times we're still kind of overshadowed, but really are necessary in every aspect of, you know, society um, and still kind of struggling for acknowledgement. After you read this passage, what questions do you have that came up for you, either in the, the other gospel or this one? When I read through maybe both the, the passage attached to the Liturgy of the Palms and then this, I often I just find myself asking the question, how is it that we are still here? How is it that we are still caught up in these same dynamics? How is Mm. it that we still crucify love every day? How is it that we still ignore the cries of the crucified in our midst? I, you know, I think this is the endless question, but it's also the reason why we have to keep coming back to these stories and the reason that we as people of faith have to keep telling these stories because they tell us the uncomfortable truth about who, who we are and who the world too often uh, is. So I, yeah, I ask the question, but it's maybe more of a question to God than uh, a question that can be easily answered. 
And I think, yeah, we, we see this play out. I think even today, if you look out politics, it's like the voices of the few, but loud um, and obnoxious sometimes um, are often, you know, the ones that carry the decisions. And I, you know, I always feel a little bad for Pilot because I feel like, you know, he's stuck in the middle. He's like, what did this guy really do? Like, I don't understand. And, you know, but he still feels like he has to be responsive to the crowd. Um, and, and I do feel for some of our politicians that get stuck in kind of that fear of, you know, maybe not necessarily doing what's right or doing what they believe in, but having to be responsive to the loudest and, um, you know, the folks that are, are gaining the media attention and, and causing, you know, ruckus um, really for this like need and desire to stay in power, right? Like if you don't, if you're not responsive, um, you know, what is that going to do to your career and um, your livelihood? And so, I mean, I think we see this play out and I'm fearful that we'll see it play out again. And, you know, the current election cycle mm. is that, you know, it's whoever's the loudest, whoever can, um, you know, cause and garner the most media attention is, you know, tends to be the ones that stay in the front of the news cycle. And, um, you know, unfortunately it was the crowd that wanted to crucify Jesus, right? Even when those kind of very valid questions are asked, like, you know, what evil has he done? What, you know, why him? And it's just like, yeah. So I definitely think it's, it's still a relevant story today. Yes. That would be a really interesting sermon, I think. I know it would probably scare all the vestries because like, oh my gosh, you're going to preach politics. But like, I'm just thinking, even if you did it like nonpartisan in a way, but like thinking about, you know, there are those folks who align themselves with the Sanhedrin, right? And they might have wanted to speak something different, but because the Sanhedrin said that, then they feel like they have to follow suit and not be able to speak out. And like Nicodemus or I think it was Nicodemus, whoever spoke to Jesus late at night, you know, in secret because he was afraid. Um, and then like there's the other group and kind of following that line and be like, how are we like that? Where we just align based on our party and think because the party supports it, maybe I might have a different opinion, but I can't share my voice or I'm afraid to share my voice. That would be an interesting. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hold on to that. Um and I always feel for Pilot. I'm like, what, what, what was Pilot, what was Pilot going through? Um, although one of my uh, congregants one called him once called him Pilati, which I thought was really funny. But um, I almost did that because of that story. <laughs> right? Um, but I just feel like you know, I wonder what would it would look like, and how many times when we have had power have we been faced with a choice where it's like you feel like you have to do this, maybe because your boss said so, or because you feel like you have to, even though you might think that the other decision might be the right one. And how, how do we make that difficult decision? Mm-hmm. And Pilate, I think, is emblematic of a danger that's true for all of us. The sort of, you face the onslaught of so many demands and so many concerns and so many cries for justice, and you become almost, you can become almost numb to them mm. and unable to discern 
what is truth. And so it, I, I think, you know, we, we have to be, be willing to see how Pilate's story aligns with, with our own as well, if we're going to understand this in a, in a full way. I think too, like, this just makes me reflect on like when I was younger, you know, the sentiment was always that you too can be president if you want to. And I'm like, uh, you know, as I'm older now, not old, but older, um, <laughs> I'm like, gosh, who really would want that job? Like to constantly, you know, be, have to be responsive to the masses. Like that is such a, a hard position to be in and to constantly be faced with making decisions and, you know, knowing that they may not always be right, but, you know, having your hands tied because you have to be responsive to the people that put you in power. Um, mm. No wonder folks who get into that office, you know, age, ex you know, incredibly <laughs> in you know, four years. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just like, it does humanize them a little bit when you think about like how difficult those positions can be and not just for our elected officials, but also for your organizational leaders, our corporate leaders um, who are not just responsive to their own needs and desires, although sometimes that happens, um, but also have to respond to larger groups of people, um, some who are louder than others, even though they may not be as populous as the more quiet, silent ones. Hmm. So there would be a fun exercise that could lead to an interesting sermon. Jesus and Pilate, how are they similar as leaders? Mm. And how are they different? What a great because idea. In a way, they, they inhabit similar roles in very different systems. Uh, so thanks for making me think about that, Christina. That's cool. Yeah, of course. I've always, yeah, had sympathy for him. <laughs> what other parallels do you see between this passage and our world or our time? I just think about how, you know, as we sit in church or however we sit and hear this passage and there's so much going on, there's so much happening kind of all at once and it's so hard to even make sense of what's going on uh and but there's this sense of creeping dread and that also feels very similar to what it's like when i open my phone and start reading the news every morning mm. there's so much going on and there's a sense of creeping dread and i don't know what to do about it necessarily on my own and so while there may not be an easy answer, there there is a I think a, an opening of inquiry there as to what what does it mean to be a person of faith, to be a Christian in a world where the cacophony of power struggle and political agenda and fear and disinformation is being circulated, because mm -hmm. that is I think what this narrative evokes, at least in part. And how does that and how does that translate to uh, a very different but also very similar landscape in which many of us find ourselves trying to to navigate in the 21st century? Uh, I think that there there is a deep parallel there between um, the sort of ways in which we are inundated with grief and with information and with the challenge and possibility of liberation all at the same time. 
and the ways in which those things show up um, in this gospel. I think too, like at the end of this um, passage, like it's it's hard to forget that there's more to the story because it feels very spinal, right? There's like the closing up of the tomb with the large stone. Um, and, you know, I agree with Phil, like the news cycle is overwhelming, right? Like it's, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world, both domestically, locally, globally, um, and on all different levels, you know, we've got climate change, we've got war, we've got, you know, hunger and, and, and different things happening, you know, at the local level, we have bills to pay and may not, you know, have the money to pay them. <laughs> or maybe the heat's not working and it's, you know, two degrees outside. Um, all of these things that we are dealing with and, um, you know, maybe have some of that foreshadowing for more that's, you know, going to come that is going to also be hard and dark. Um, and there really is no kind of like the way that this is cut there's no like hey like just hold on it's gonna get better right like it, there isn't that kind of message at the end of the story that says you know just wait <laughs> wait a few days right things will start to brighten up um and we see that in other stories in the bible where it, like it does get very dark and gloomy and then it like kind of transitions and you get a rainbow and you know there's these promises that this won't happen again um that this was a one-time thing. Um, and so I think, you know, just knowing, since we, we kind of do this every year, <laughs> that there is, you know, there is good coming and just kind of keeping that message going. Um, and even though we're, we're ending this part of the chapter in a dark place, knowing that there is, you know, more to come. Resurrection is, is, is coming. Um, and so I think, I think that's important also when you speak with your congregations, knowing that, um, you know, folks are living in the same news cycle that you are and are facing a lot of the same challenges that, that you are, is, you know, giving them the hope uh, that there are brighter days to come is important. That was one of the questions I was thinking of asking too, is like, when you preach this, do you preach it with this? era of hope or do we preach it with sort of like and then this happened and we're all really sad enjoy your holy week or you know i don't know how that would work but like <laughs> like where do we sort of i think and i think that could be really careful like you as the preacher need to think about the group you're preaching to right because it would be very different maybe if you're preaching to a congregation where everything's always really good and maybe that's where you are so you want to sort of say hey this you know we all will suffer and when that happens, here's somebody we can identify with and you, you would be okay ending it. But if you're one that's really struggled this year, you know, how do you sort of give them that, that peace? I think on any Sunday of the year, we still have to remember that we need to preach the good news. Mm. Just, it's a matter of how is it evoked? Uh, but, but no, I, I don't think a complete doom and gloom <laughs> all is lost sermon is necessarily going to be the best strategy despite the realities of the gospel because I think the truth of life and therefore the truth of how we preach and show up in church is that 
grief and hope are always intertwined with one another. They are inseparable from one another. Mm. So I don't think we get to, and we should not try to, separate them out in some tidy fashion uh, and only tend to one without the other. Mm. One of the things that I was thinking about, Phil, as you were talking just now, is like, how do we give that hope, even though we maybe don't want to do the, I forget what that's called, when somebody tells you the end of the movie. Um, spoiler. And, spoiler, yeah, without being spoilers. Is thinking about like, I was thinking about like our funerals in, in Indian country. That's something I think we do really well. We have to do a mm -hmm. lot of them. Um, but like the whole community comes together. Nothing brings the community together like a funeral or a death. And mm -hmm. even though it's incredibly sad, the thing that sort of makes it better or the good news in that is that community is that love that you see being expressed and the service that you have you know you have people with hardly any money who will you know use their food stamps to get you and make a huge pot of pasta salad to bring to that funeral because they loved your grandma or your auntie or your uncle or whoever it was that's being remembered at that moment that of course reminds me of the woman anointing jesus for burial again that loops back so who have we allowed to be crucified in our time or who has been harmed that we have stood silently by as it happens or maybe not so silently i think about <laughs> like our kids in school and like those who are like the targets of bullies and i think about when i was in school and even though i wasn't like an active bully i was also very much a bystander um, mm. for fear of not becoming a target. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's like a daily crucifixion for them. Like they're constantly, you know, coming to war. Um, and I think that has gotten a lot more intense in the, um, in the dawn of technology where it can happen even outside the walls of school. And, um, yeah. Uh, that's immediately where my head went when you asked, like in our daily lives. I think it's those those folks who are seen as different or eccentric or, um, you know, just not meeting this like mold of normal if we even have one, um, um. you know, and, and just making sure that like we are not silent um, in that and even if the fear is that then we become the target, like, you know, when the targets outnumber <laughs> the accusers and, and the people, uh, you know, kind of doing the bullying, um, their strength in numbers and can help turn the tide in that, in that way. Hmm. I think for me, what immediately came to mind again, probably because of some of what I've been involved in this year is the ways in which we are crucifying our, you know, God's creation, the ways in which exploitation and waste uh, are, are continuing to lead to uh, an unhealthy planet and unhealthy um, ecologies that are, you know, largely being ignored. The, the suffering of non-human creation is glossed over, justified even uh, in all kinds of ways. And even for those among us who feel 
deeply concerned and and wanting to do our part, it can feel like you are a bystander at the crucifixion, not knowing even what to do to stop what what is happening because it feels so big and so beyond any any single one of us to impact. Um, and so, I think the the implications of that ongoing crucifixion will continue to will continue to grow and and reveal themselves. And I pray that the possibility of resurrection will also reveal itself in new ways over time. But but that one weighs heavily uh, on my mind and in my heart as we as we mm. continue on through the years, seemingly unable to change our to change both our perhaps some of our own habits, but more importantly, the systems that we've built that sort of heedlessly uh, corrupt uh, God's beloved creation. And I think that whole bystander effect, you know, we talk about it in different regards of this, you know, like relying on someone else to act, right? Um, and being confident that you don't need to because someone else will surely do it. And, right. um, you know, it's fine if it's just you feeling that way. But when it's everybody feeling that way, mm-hmm. um, it really does. Yeah, it, it, it has a huge impact. And I know even in thinking about environmental issues, which, you know, I'm a big advocate for, for the environment, you know, I'm like, what impact am I really having in recycling this one bottle? Right. Mm. Um, and it's like, if everybody felt that way and resulted in not recycling, it's like, then yeah, sure. It's not going to have an impact, but if we can all just do our own part, um, however small it may feel, I think, yeah, the impact then is, is multiplied. Um, so the bystander effect, I think it's really, it's really interesting and really hurtful, um, in a lot of different scenarios. I think when we see crime happening, when we, you know, see trauma occurring and it's like, I won't stop to assist for that accident because I don't want to be involved and surely someone else will stop. Right. Mm. Um, and so we continue to just pass by and, and put our blinders on. And I think we need to take our blinders off, right? We need to um, see our fellow people and the environment and animals as our relatives and realize, you know, if that was my mom, I would stop, right? And I would want everybody else who passes by to stop. Um, and I, I think we need to, to humanize, you know, each other again. I think we've, we've moved away from that and, um, really need to, to turn back towards that. As you talked about the bystander effect, Christina, it, for some reason, it brought my mind back to pilot <laughs> again, and just the, the complexity of a, a leader who perhaps also claims to be a helpless bystander to forces beyond their control, and just the, the complex interplay of um, sort of culpability and agency and systems uh, and individual choice. But I think the reminder of of the necessity of claiming our own agency alongside the necessity of uh, dismantling oppressive systems, like it has to be both um, because otherwise it's too easy to either feel helpless or to give oneself a pass and say, oh, well, I I didn't I didn't crucify him. That was someone else. I didn't destroy the planet. That was somebody else versus understanding that we're we're all responsible to one another. 
Hmm. As you were talking, Phil, it made me think about, like, I know that palms for Palm Sunday have also been talked about as some of them are harvested sustainably and some of them are very, Hmm. like, you know, using bad labor. And how can we think about that as we think about creation and incorporating that into our services? I know, like, in... I think the Russian Orthodox Church, they use uh, pussy willows as their item that they give away and mm. that they carry with them on Palm Sunday. And I wonder what it would look like if we use things that were local to us. I don't know what they would be necessarily everywhere, but what might that look like? Or if we were to think about in our own cultural context, if Jesus were coming in, what might we lay down or how might we express our um, admiration or joy or whatever it would be for for that person? Um, like in an Indian context, I'm thinking it might be like, you know, we'd host a powwow and there'd be a feast and we would, you know, there'd be dancing and stuff and Jesus would get to be in the place of honor in the grand entry or, you know, whatever, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. thinking along those lines, how might that look? Mm -hmm. What ideas do you have for preaching this text? I know I've heard a couple. I'm just going to repeat some of the things you said, like seeking truth was like a theme I heard, Uh, Jesus versus Pilate. I was given this advice once, so I will pass it on for Palm Sunday in particular. Keep your sermons short. Mm. Like, just very practically speaking, if you're a, let's say you you generally preach 12 to 15 minutes, or heaven help us, even longer than that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Maybe maybe think about this being more like an eight-minute sermon. and the reason for that, I think, is Palm Sunday, alongside some other liturgies, several of which are Holy Week liturgies, the liturgy, in a way, almost preaches itself. Mm. And you, the preacher does not necessarily feel, should not feel the need to bear the full weight of interpretation because this is a living narrative, because this is an immersive experience. The liturgy does a particular form of its own work that if you take on the impossible task of trying to interpret and elucidate everything that people just heard in the passion narrative, it could actually end up being a distraction. So Mm. I would say, keep it short, keep it tight, pick one point or theme, do it well and sit down. I like that. Um, And, you know, also, you know, making it as interactive as possible, particularly around Palm Sunday. Um, And then I I also like, I've not really experienced this a lot. I have experienced it some um, in smaller uh, churches, but like offering reflection questions. I think even as we've done that exercise here, um, you know, and really figuring out ways in which you can connect to the gospel is really important and how you can um, see the gospel in your own life and in your own context. Um, Not that you have to do a go around of your congregation and ask for people to share, because I think that would probably result in you losing folks for the next (laughs) week. (laughs) Like, oh no, (laughs) not going back to that church. Um, But I think, you know, giving people place and space to think about and reflect on some of the pieces that and themes that come out in the passion uh i think that 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 would have an impact on on a lot of folks Hmm. yeah i really like this thought of the creation as characters and i was trying to think 
after you said that, I was trying to think, I was thinking a lot about the garden. What would it be like? What, I wonder what the garden was thinking and how would the garden feel as if that was the place Jesus came to for repose? And then how would Golgotha feel as like the place where all these people were killed and how mm-hmm. might that land be different than this land and how, anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with it. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to preach on that, but I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. All, all creation bears witness to the story. Yes. Where would you put the sermon in this liturgy? Would it? Would you put it after the liturgy of the palms? Would you put it um, in its normal, normal, quote unquote, normal place uh, after the reading of the gospel? And then my other question was, you know, some people do this dramatic reading of the passage, and they have the characters come up there and they do it. I've also heard it chanted uh, with like in four parts. Where would you put it, and and what kind of how would you have it read? I know in the parish that I currently serve and the ones I have served previously, the sermon falls in its customary place. So it, it, it follows the passion narrative. I don't, mm. I don't know that I've been in a, a setting where it was preached in a different point of the liturgy. That would be an interesting thing to explore if, if folks were up for something a little different. Um, but I, I think because it's still, at least where I serve, it is still a, traditional Eucharistic service with following the pattern, I, I, I think we will probably end up keeping it in the normal, in the normal spot. And participatory reading is great. I, I, I think it's because it's this immersive, inclusive experience of living out. I think that that can speak to that well. I would just say, of course, always make sure that your, your lectors are well supported and well prepared in their ministry mm, mm. because this narrative is so important. If if someone is not perhaps ready to enunciate or say the words that they need to say, or if someone misses their part, and then there's this sort of like awkward silence versus oh, a yeah. reverent silence, you know, that can end up being more of a distraction than a than an, an addition to the liturgy. So I, I would say that Palm Sunday is a really good opportunity, even if you don't normally practice your liturgies to build in some some kind of practice or review with your key lectors or other other ministers mm-hmm. i'm thinking if we did what you suggested christina about the focus questions or having some questions to think about then it might make sense to do it after the liturgy of the palms and you can almost like almost like a foreshadowing be like as we hear the passion narrative like do the little sermon and as we hear the passion think about you know, ask them maybe one or two, maybe the most, maybe three questions to think about as they're hearing that passion. Who are you in this story? Where do you see these parallels between da-da-da and da-da-da? Or I think that would be really interesting. And then that kind of, people may may, may pay attention more. Maybe they won't. Maybe, they, I don't know. Maybe they're busy worrying about what line they're going to say as you're reading it collectively. <laughs> Thank you so much for being uh, guests on the podcast. I know our listeners love to hear your stories and thoughts, uh, and so do I. Um, and I really just appreciate and I'm so grateful for both of you uh, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I wish everyone a blessed Palm Sunday and Holy Week this year. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Christina and Phil. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If our conversation moved something in you today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians 
and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash offering or text GFO to 91999. Good Friday offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.